Father, thank you that we can say with great assurance and confidence this morning that our sin, not in part, but the whole, is covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. By your grace and through faith, we can enter into such a great salvation. What a good reminder this morning, Father, and we do look forward to the day when we'll be with you and we'll be like you because we will see you as you are. In the meantime, Father, we want to be faithful. We want to walk in the truth and we want to live the truth. And we want to live out your plan for our lives. As we take our Bibles now, Father, would you teach us and grow us and challenge us, convict us, motivate us to go from here and to live out your calling upon our lives. We commit ourselves now to the hearing of the word in Jesus' name. Amen. I was interested to note last uh, Sunday that uh, sometime after late Saturday evening, one of our uh, guys in the church uh, posted on his Facebook account a story about what he and his wife had experienced just last Saturday at a restaurant. They were sitting at a restaurant eating, and uh, well, the, the, I printed out the Facebook uh, a story. It's in pointed terms. Now, I don't do Facebook. Make sure you know that. But Janet saw it and called my attention to it. And uh, this was the story. Um, The Facebook story says, Dinner last night. 75-year-old man in wheelchair next to our table stops breathing. Heimlich administered. No response. Screams for doctors. In 15 seconds, there's an emergency room nurse and an MD right there. Nurse takes over chest compressions. Five minutes of... Five minutes... Emergency guys arrive, suction applied down the windpipe, and out comes the steak. Restaurant empties out in a hurry. I thought, isn't it interesting, in our schizophrenic culture, how much intensity and urgency there is to save a life that's already been lived? I mean, you would think, if we would be consistent with the logic of our culture... That if some guy starts choking, especially an older guy, and it's not that 75 so old, but there's a 75-year-old guy choking on his steak, that everybody in the restaurant might look over and say, good, it's about time, and keep eating their dinner, right? Instead, we have training, and we have emergency vehicles, and we have all kinds of life support systems, and we will pour out the resources of our entire community and country to save a life that literally has essentially been all lived out. But when it comes to a life that has not yet been lived, our president stands up and before the nation proclaims with authority that with all of his might, he will maintain the right for people to kill unborn babies. And that is remarkable to the mind. It doesn't really make sense, does it? And it is interesting, isn't it, that, um, that though we live in what was established as a Christian nation, We tend very much to think that we are a civilized people, but when you watch the headlines, it is interesting that what you see. I I have been, without even trying, knowing that this message was coming, and let me say, by the way, that this is an annual event for me to stop our series and to address the sanctity of human life as we as believers in the Lord Christ and believers in the Word of God as the authoritative Bible, our Bibles as the authoritative Word of God, 
believe that we must be salt and light in society, that we do not want to be pressed into the mold of the world around us. We do not think like the world around us. We want very much to teach our children and and the future generations how to live biblically, to live godly in Christ Jesus and to be able to stand against the pressures of the world. I fully recognize on the one hand that this is a very politically incorrect topic to address with any sense of authority or opinion and conviction. This is one of those subjects that has become very acceptable that each person is to do what is right in their own eyes on. I also recognize, and I want to say very carefully, that in an audience like this, that there are many who have experienced sinful decisions of the past that, that apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ, they would haunt and drive you crazy. And so I very much want to preach with strength and conviction, but I very much want to preach this morning with love and grace. I want you to know right off the bat that I'm not here to beat anybody down. I'm here to take a stand that our church in the series in which we find ourselves in January, examining ourselves, that are we the church God wants us to be? Are we living up to our potential that we will never be the church God wants us to be if we are not willing to call sin, sin? And if we are not willing to love sinners, if we are not willing to make a stand on the things that God has spoken about in His Word, then in a manner of speaking, we're not of much use to God. Why are we here? We want to be salty salt, don't we? We want to be a bright light. And so I think it is important to address this topic. And so knowing that it was coming, I have without, uh, as I said, any effort at all, collected numerous headlines just since the the first of the year. One caught my eye because I thought it was so heinous. Let me just read it to you. It is entitled, uh, from January 17th, January 17th from the Associated Press of 2011, the title of the article is Killings of Newborn Babies on the Rise in Pakistan. comes from a story from Karachi. The lifeless bodies of two tiny babies are being given their final bath before burial in Karachi after they were left to die in the southern Pakistani city's garbage dump. They can only have been one or two days old, said volunteer worker Mohammed Salim, pointing at the two small corpses being gently washed by his colleagues at a charity's morgue. In the conservative Muslim nation, where the birth of children outside of marriage is condemned and adultery is a crime punishable by death under strict interpretations of Islamic law, infanticide is a crime that is on the rise. More than 1,000 infants, most of them girls, were killed or abandoned to die in Pakistan last year, according to conservative estimates by the Edi Foundation, a charity working to reverse the grim trend. The infanticide figures are collected only from Pakistan's main cities, leaving huge swaths of the largely rural nation, and the charity says that in December... Alone, it found 40 dead babies left in garbage dumps and sewers. 
The number of dead infants found last year, 1,210, was up from 890 in 2008 and 999 in 2009, says the Edie Foundation manager in Karachi, Anwar Kazmi. Tragic tales abound, and the article goes on. We read something like that, and we just think, that is so horrible. So horrible that people would have a baby and then just put it in the trash dump or put it in the sewer and let it die. And we think, well, you know, that's understandable for those pagans, you know, far away Pakistan, those people that, you know, they just don't know how to think. And we're a Christian nation. Yes, we are. And let me tell you that 1,200 babies left in a trash landfill is nothing compared to the 1.2 million babies that were aborted this year in the United States alone. And we get all fired up and say, wow, what a horrible thing. Have you been watching the headlines in our own country? It has been brutal and shocking. And I know that some of these stories are somewhat extreme. But you got the, the New York Times, January 6th, 2011. New York City doesn't get any more civilized than that, doesn't it? Does it? That's no Pakistan. That's no faraway country or whatever, however you want to think about it. That's as contemporary as it gets. January 6th, the New York Times came out with an article that stated that 40% of all pregnancies in the city limit of New York City end in abortion. That's four out of every 10 babies conceived are destroyed and thrown away. Four out of 10. That is remarkable. It not only ends there, though, but there's a huge racial issue in New York City. And the statistic racially divided among African Americans is at 60% in New York City. Where is the outcry? Have you heard anybody talking very much about this? I spent some time up on the Yukon River fishing and working for an uncle of mine. And one afternoon when I was walking along the beach there, there was a a slough that came in. It kind of looks like a river to everybody else. This is the Delta region of the Yukon River. This is Alaska where it dumps into the Bering Sea. There's actually three mouths to the Yukon River. There's a north mouth, a middle mouth, a south mouth. I was on the middle mouth in a little community, an Eskimo village called Imanak. If you're white, if you're white you say Imanak. If you're Eskimo, you say Imanak or something. It's a very guttural language there and you can't hardly say it. The young men there love to do something and they use this item right here. This is the actual one I found when I was walking along the beach. It's real messy and dirty. People just throw their trash in the river. The boys and the men all have wooden river boats. This is 1978 to 82 when I worked there. And I don't know what they do now exactly. But back then, they still made, most of them made their own river boats. It would be about five feet wide in the back. It would be about 24 feet long. It was a real heavy, took like eight men to pick it up. Made out of plywood and wood. They were really good at making them. And uh, it was a flat-bottomed river boat that came to a pointed bow, and they would salmon fish out of them on the rivers. Most of them were powered by about a, like a 60-horse mariner back then, was a real popular kicker that they would go around in. And those boats lined the shore. And one day, I was standing there up on the bank, cut bank, 
And I heard somebody holler, seal, seal, seal. And all the young men, like from 18 to 30, just went running down to the beach. And they jump in their boats and one guy grabs the the boat and they're all pulling and they're trying to be the first one out there. And like 30 boats go racing out into the river there. Somebody had spotted a seal surfacing. A seal is a mammal. It has to come to the surface to get air. And somebody saw its head pop up. And two or three guys in the front of the boat, one guy, and they it's either all the way off or it's all the way on. And they're just going like 60, and all these boats zigzagging and jumping each other's wake, and the guys in the front are leaning out on the bow, looking, 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 waiting for, and this is what they're holding in their hand. It's a homemade stick. They took a willow stick. They carve it out, put a little feathers on it so it'll fly a little better, cut off a piece of copper pipe, hollow out around the stick up here, take a 12-gauge shot shell, fill it with shot in there, jam the pipe around that holds the shot in so it's heavy in the front, Take a 16 or 20 penny nail and hammer it out, file it into a, into a harpoon point and put the 16 penny nail up in there and then they tie a string to this to a little float with a long line on it. And the boy up in front is holding his, he's got several of these in his hand and they're looking for the seal and they try to get it a harpoon. The stick falls off. That's why this one floated, happened to come into shore even though it's weighted. And then they follow the buoy around and then the real dangerous part starts because all these guys in these boats all year long just laying in the boat are their guns and in the rain and rusty and everything. They grab their shotguns and there's two guys in the front of every boat and they follow the cork around and when the seal comes up, the whole place just lights up. Blam, 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 blam. Do you know that people have dedicated their lives to getting in boats and going out there and trying to get in front of the guns and save the seals? Do you know that Mega Millions has been poured into programs on cable television to go around the world to stop whalers from killing poor, innocent whales? Now, I'm not here to promote the slaughter of seals, and they're pretty brutal. But I am here to question, what is more valuable? Seals, whales... Human life. This mind-boggling, isn't it? That this is even a topic we have to address. That somebody would come up with the idea that if you don't want a baby, you can just expel it. You can just get rid of it. You can just shred it and get rid of it. The, another headline you saw this this week from Philadelphia is this this butcher that got caught, and I know he broke the law, but he's up for murder of eight women, counts of murder who died in his abortuary, and then seven counts of infanticide with scissors. So unbelievable. I was thinking that clearly our hearts are hard if we can read headlines like that and not react. Somehow, somebody somewhere needs to really be speaking up. Now, granted, there will be a big march on Washington tomorrow, a pro-life march. People are trying to be heard. Can you imagine if 30,000 seals a day were being slaughtered or aborted? Or if 30,000 bald eagle eggs were being broken a day? What kind of coverage there would be on CNN? You can't get much coverage. You can't get many people to get too excited. But do you know that This isn't really a new problem. This is an old problem. This idea of killing babies, this idea of 
convenience killing, of getting to a place in our thinking where we can say, this is an okay thing to do. I invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 1 this morning, and we're going to go way back uh, several thousand years, and we're going to recognize that it's a problem. By the way, right now in America, they, they tell us that the statistic average of abortion across our country is 22%. So that means that just a little over two out of every baby's conceived is being wiped out in abortion. I also want to acknowledge that I recognize that the matter of the sanctity of human life is a greater issue than just abortion. And that we live in a time where we have issues on the extremes of life. It is becoming more and more popular to regulate suicide. It's becoming uh, available to be able to go on suicide vacations. It's a vacation you don't come back from, but you can go on it. And you can stop and think that it actually has a logic to it, isn't it? To the, to the way that, to the idea, uh, for example, have you ever watched someone die of cancer? And if you've watched someone or ministered to somebody, you think, I don't want to go through that. We also have a growing problem, though, that as we lose our moral footing in America and as we depart from the standards of the Word of God and as we depart from, becoming, from being a Christian nation, we recognize that as a culture, historically, this is documented, that civilizations of all times, all known civilizations and all cultures, that as they have departed from any sense of a, of a biblical morality or an awareness of God as their creator and someone they're accountable to and created by, that one of the, one of the characteristics of an imploding culture is a disregard for the extremes of life. That is, they will begin to abuse the very young, they will begin to abuse the very old, and who knows where we'll end up with the middle age if the government gets in control of saying who gets to be administered health care to. It's a very scary concept because at that point you now have somebody who can say, we will address these issues, but we will not address these issues. That's just the way it is. And so we have all kinds of issues going on. Some of them are complex. Most of them are very simple it is just downright barbaric to slaughter your unborn babies. It is unnatural and it is illogical. And you have to say to yourself, where did this come from? And we can go back thousands of years and we can see that it happened then even. And we'll see it in our story. But I was thinking that there is a... There has to be a scheme of the evil one. Satan himself had to have cooked this up. Otherwise, how would you get a mommy to give up her unborn baby and say it's a good thing? How would you get it, how would you get it to a place where you would get people who would support this thing? Let's revisit the boardroom of hell. We've been there before. It's where they cooked up the Easter bunny and Santa Claus. Do you remember the boardroom of hell? And Satan is calling in his minions and his lieutenants. And he's at the head of the table and he calls the meeting to order and it's smoky and it's real hissing and there's steam rolling up and Satan says, we need somehow to destroy life. Life is something that is of God and we are against life. 
How can we destroy life? How can we ruin the lives of young women and young men early on and scar them deeply in their soul and make them turn to drugs and alcohol to get rid of their pain? We need a plan, a scheme. We can only get so far with the Easter Bunny and Santa Claus to turn their mind away from God and Christ. And this lieutenant demon across the table says, I have an idea. And the guy across from him says, you don't have any ideas. I have an idea. I have an idea. Let's get them to kill their unborn babies. That'll never work. How are we going to make that happen? A guy on the table says, I know how to do it. Let's convince them that their world is overpopulated. And the guy on the other end of the table says, stupid idea. They fly in airplanes. They can look down and see that it's vastly unpopulated. Doesn't matter. They'll believe that it's overpopulated. Oh, will they believe it? They'll believe it. The other guy says, maybe we can convince them that there's not enough food to eat and we're all going to starve to death so that we must kill people to minimize the population. We won't be able to feed them and they'll starve to death and that would be heinous. They'll say, the other guy down the table says, that'll never work. Why? Why won't it work? Because they pump gas in their cars every day and they pump 10% food into their gas tank. They know that there's plenty of food. No, it'll work. And they will begin to kill their unborn babies because they won't be able to feed them and we're overpopulated and they will believe lies. Hey, you can just go on and on and you just think, where did this stuff come from? Why would you believe this? Why would you just go down that road? But as long as mankind has existed, almost, we've had an issue with these things. Let's read Exodus chapter 1. I want to introduce you to two beautiful ladies today. And I'm hoping that not too far in the distant future, um, and maybe my granddaughter would have this name. I don't know. I think it would be a great honor to name your little girls after these girls here, at least a middle name. They are so worthy. It's Shipra and Pua. That's not too bad, is it? Pua, come help with the dishes, Pua. I mean, you better not call her Pua because she's going to get abused at school, but you just have to agree with me, I think, by the time we're done, that these are wonderful ladies who put their lives on the line for life. The context in Exodus chapter 1 is that uh, Genesis is wrapped up. Now, we haven't wrapped up Genesis, but when you're in Exodus 1, you've finished Genesis And uh, we'll pick it up at verse 6. It's kind of a self-explanatory contextual statements here. Exodus chapter 1. Now Joseph and all of his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. Then a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. Now if you're new to us, we've been studying Genesis and we've been into the life of Joseph We'll be back to it soon and finish out Genesis. But you recall that Joseph was taken into captivity. Then his father and his brothers came down to be saved from starvation. And there they were. And there they began to grow into a people group and into a nation that God had promised would happen. Remember, in the Abrahamic covenant, he said, for as many stars as there are in the sky, that's how many people will be in your, in your family. And you're going to be a great nation. And it's going to just grow. And that's what's happening. And so 
Verse 8, Then a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. And they made their lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. And in all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Pua, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. And then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. And so God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. And then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Incredible, isn't it? Let's look at our two sets of key characters. First of all, we have the wicked king. And I want you to see, number one, first of all, that he is a ruthless king. It uses the word twice in the passage. As he began to get nervous about what was happening in his country, this group of people that was once a minority group is now growing. It is becoming a vast group of people. It is out of control. He is very concerned for socioeconomic reasons, but not the least of his concerns is a military coup-type problem that if an enemy catches on, comes in to attack, that the people within them are so great and so powerful that they would join in and ally with the attacking nation and Egypt would fold. So he redoubles the effort to control them, breaks them down into groups, puts, puts masters over them, drives them mercilessly out of a ruthless heart, and he, we know that he's a wicked man, and then he realizes that they're still continuing to grow, and so secondly, we see that he is a heartless king because he calls the Hebrew midwives in to, for an audience, and we would assume that Shipra and Pua are representative of many midwives. I would say that with a population explosion like the Hebrews were experiencing, that they must have had dozens or dozens and dozens of midwives, and that perhaps Shipra and Pua were administrative or recognized as influential. Maybe they were the teachers of the midwives. We don't know. But they are named, and we know their name today, and I think the reason the writer put it in there so that we could honor these ladies Historians debate which pharaoh or which king of Egypt this was. He is a no-name. And so a powerful man goes down in history as unknown. 
and two marvelous ladies who took a courageous stand are well known to us. You need to know their names and just thank God for people like them and for them. But he calls them and he has a new plan. Here's what we want to do. When, verse 16, you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, the Hebrew literally there is two stones. They evidently had some kind of a a sitting up arrangement for giving birth was their culture, their tradition, and how they allowing gravity to help the process. When they're there and the baby comes, basically, and as soon as you can recognize that it's a boy, kill him. Basically, I guess they were just kind of let him drop on the floor or, you know, whatever it takes. Sorry, he was stillborn. And if it's a girl, let her live. He's trying to control the population. What a heartless king. I have to ask myself, what kind of guy would call the midwives in? What kind of heart does it take? What kind of mindset does it take to call the midwives in and say, here's what I want you to do when you're delivering baby boys. Kill them. And it occurred to me, the exact same kind of heart that sits on our Supreme Court in 1973 and says that if a woman wants to, she can vacuum out any unborn baby out of her body. Body, The exact same kind of mind and heart. The exact same kind of mind and heart of a president who will stand up and say publicly this week that I want my girls to be as free as any boy. Therefore, I will always fight for the right to abort babies so that a woman doesn't have to be hampered and hindered in her own body. How can God bless a people whose leadership talks like that and makes decisions like that? It's scary. It's scary. That's the kind of heart. That's the kind of mind. But then I ask myself, maybe you're not too far from it if you can just live your life and pretend it doesn't happen. Maybe we can just isolate it, talk about it once a year, and then that's it. Feel good about ourselves. He was a ruthless king. He was a heartless king. But I want you to see in verse 17 that when the midwives refused to carry out the orders, that it was because they feared God. And that immediately brings a whole new light on the text. And we realize right away that there's something else going on here. And thirdly, he's not only ruthless, heartless, but he is a godless king. And we see now that we have a battle of worldviews going on, don't we? We don't just have a... We don't just have a wicked king making selfish decisions, trying to protect his turf. We have, literally, the conflict conflict of worldviews. It goes back to the very boardroom of hell and the promotion of an agenda and a worldview that is godless. I don't care what God says. I don't believe that he's my creator. After all, you weren't created. You came out of some pre-mortal soupy murk and there was a big bang and that's where you came from. So you have no accountability. So therefore, you are in control of your own destiny and you can do whatever you want because you're in charge of your own body and you're not. God said, Paul said clearly, I beg of you and I beseech you to present your bodies unto God as a living sacrifice, holy, pleasing unto him. God regularly calls for us to control our bodies. Is it any wonder in the world in which we live with the abuse of the body that's going on at all kinds of levels? A Christian's body is to be under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so you have two women 
Two women who fear God. They know that they were created. They know that they have a redeemer. They know that they have someone to whom they will stand accountable one day. They know that they do not make up the rules. They know that when God says, thou shalt not murder, he means thou shalt not murder. He didn't, it's not a suggestion. It's put down for a reason. Because why? Because when God created human beings, it was different than when God created trees and lizards and white-tailed deer and bass fish and protozoa. Humans possess the image of a holy God. We reflect that image, and our life is sacred. We move from this ruthless, heartless, godless king to these wonderful women, and I love these women. Two women who undermine the king. Let's look at what their qualities were quickly, shall we? First of all, I want you to see that they were, number one, women of conviction. They refused to obey him, verse 16. His rule was to kill the baby boys. They refused. They did not cooperate because in verse 17 it says, the midwives, however, feared God. The first thing that we learn about them is that they were God-fearing women. That word fear of God is something that's a little bit confusing to some people. Why should I fear God? I want to have a loving relationship with God. Indeed, you do. I want Abba, Father, Papa, Father, God. I want to crawl up in God's lap and let Him love me. I don't want to be afraid of Him. I was afraid of my earthly father. Listen, it's like this. When little Vanny was out playing softball over at Johnny and Tommy Simon's house and he heard Papa, Papa Marceau whistle, I could hear that whistle no matter where I was. And I dropped everything and I ran home because when my dad whistled, it meant, I want you home right now. And I knew that if my dad said, I want you home right now, he wanted me home right now. And I was afraid of him. I respected him. I, I knew that he ruled the roost. I knew that he was in charge. But I want to tell you something else. I was never afraid of my dad. I knew that nobody in the world loved me more than my dad. I knew that he regularly held me, and I remember walking across the Montgomery Ward parking lot at the Dixie Square Mall in South Chicago, Illinois, and I was like 12 years old, and I realized for the first time that I, in public, was holding hands with my dad, and I pulled my hand away. I can remember that moment today. The first time I was self-conscious that I was old enough as an almost teenager to realize I'm holding hands, I shouldn't hold hands with my dad. I never questioned my dad's love but I knew that he was in charge and that it was the right thing to obey. That's the kind of thing we have here. He's not an abusive Heavenly Father. He's not an abusive Heavenly Father at all, but he is a God of righteous judgment and wrath who rules in total perfection, and he rules the world. Why would you think that you shouldn't be afraid of him in the sense that we stand in awe and in humility and in... Tremendous subjection to God. That's the fear of God. Proverbs says it is the, the fear of God is the beginning of knowledge and understanding. That until you have a fear of God, you don't have a perspective to understand anything around you. You will distort your understanding of the world in which you live until you have a fear of God. Proverbs says that not only is the fear of God the beginning of wisdom and knowledge, but to fear God is to hate evil. You will not have a proper perspective on sin and evil until you have a fear of God and recognize that there is a consequence to sin and evil behavior. 
These women were women of conviction. They feared God. And Luke chapter 12 and verse 4, we'll not take time to turn there, says, Jesus said, Why would you be afraid of people or men who can kill your body? Rather be afraid or fear God who can cast your soul in hell forever. These women did not fear men, they feared God. And like the Apostle Peter who said, I would obey God rather than men. You want to define the parameters of civil disobedience? There is a proper place for civil disobedience and it is this. It is when the rule of man directly contradicts the rule of God, you always obey the rule of God no matter the consequence. Yes, we render to Caesar what is Caesar's. But when Caesar asks me to violate biblical principles, I don't do it. Doesn't mean I blow up buses. I don't blow up parades. I just quietly say, I don't do that. And whatever the consequence is, is. These women were women of conviction. Not only that, though, they were women of courage. Look at verse 17 quickly. The midwives feared God. There's their conviction. And they did not do what the king of Egypt had told them. Listen, there is no court system. There is no attorney to defend these ladies. This is, you disobey the king, your head rolls. That took courage. They put their very lives on the line to save these babies. Women of conviction, women of courage. Not only that, though, they were women of compassion. Look what it says. And they let the boys live. Do you know that midwives love babies? They're not going to kill the babies. What's wrong with that king? They were women of compassion. Can I tell you that on this topic, we need to be known as a church filled with grace and love and compassion. I know that I can get strong and preach and call for conviction. I don't think that we go out and stand on sidewalks and hiss at young girls who are walking into an abortuary. I don't think that's what Jesus did. In fact, I know it's not what Jesus did. Do you remember, picture this in Luke 7, because I love this little lady too. We often talk about her on days like today. In Luke chapter 7, that woman who came to Jesus, the Pharisees stood around. She went up to Jesus and she broke an alabaster jar and poured perfume on him. And then she was weeping and she got down and she cried her tears, fell on Jesus' feet. She pulled the pin out of her hair and let her hair drop and she began to wipe his feet with her hair. And the Pharisee standing around said, That's a sinful woman. If he knew who she was, he wouldn't let her touch him. That tells you what kind of a sinful woman she was. And what did Jesus say? I came into your house to eat and you didn't even have the common courtesy to wash my feet with a bowl of water out of the tap. And this woman hasn't stopped washing my feet with her tears. You think you don't have sin in your life like she has? Do you see the brokenness? Do you see the weeping? The reason is, is she has deep sorrow for her sin and she has been forgiven much. And people who have been forgiven much love much. Woman, your sin is forgiven. Do you know that this is the answer to the abortion and all of these moral issue problems? The gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Apart from the gospel, you will never find relief from your plaguing conscience. You don't need to come to church and be beat up on it. You need compassion and grace, and you need a loving Heavenly Father. I had a young man leaving the first service this morning. He had tears in his eyes. He said, Pastor Van, he said, I'm responsible for an abortion. And my mom drove us there. And he said, the only answer, the only way I keep from going crazy is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that I am forgiven by his grace. And the will of God starts brand new in my life now. We can't undo the past. We can only move forward. And these midwives are a model of compassion, aren't they? That we can emulate. But they also end up being women to be commended. Look what it says. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives. Why does this happen? A lot of people think they lied to the king. The midwives, verse 19, answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth. I don't know. I don't know that they lied. I think they didn't, didn't tell everything they knew. But I suspect that the Hebrew women told the Hebrew women what the king said. And so the Hebrew women who were having babies just waited a little longer to call the Hebrew midwives to come in to bail them out. And the Hebrew midwives who were on their way in kind of held off at the red lights a little bit longer. And they just didn't tell the king all that. I don't know that they lied. They just didn't hurry to get there. And the babies were born and they couldn't kill them. I'm not going to do infanticide. And then look at verse 20. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became more numerous. Now 21. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Isn't that nice? That is amazing. I guess that these midwives were childless women. And in their childlessness, they filled a void by becoming midwives. They enjoyed being around babies. And God honored them because of their conviction and because of their courage to say no to the king and put their lives on the line. And because of their compassion for these babies, God then commends them and gives them children of their own. Don't you think we should have some baby girls around here named Shipra and Pua? Come on, help me out. I'll like that. Well, what do we do with this? We see the headlines. We recognize the, the cultural societal downgrade. We recognize that it's an old problem from the pit of hell. But we have these two dear ladies to model for us what our church must be characterized by, right? Conviction that we obey God no matter what, courage to do it, to put our very lives on the line, compassion, broken hearts for young men and women and people and babies. Somehow we got to get involved, don't we? It's good that we fill a baby bottle with change every spring and support our local clinic. I don't know. I think there's lots of levels We don't have time to get into it, but one thing we can do is address the elephant in the evangelical living room, and that is that statistically our children are just as promiscuous 
as the world's children. And if you take away promiscuity, you basically address 60 or 70% or more of the abortion issue. If children are not promiscuous and they wait in virginity till they're married, the odds of an abortion happening are almost zero. But when children are promiscuous and get involved and then babies come, then you've got to solve your problem somehow. So one thing we can do is raise up our children with all of our strength and fight the fight with all of our might that our children walk the aisle as virgins. But some of you know people. Some of you have connections. Get involved. Some of you have resources. Do you know that ultrasound is helping solve this problem? That when they can look inside and see a picture, some of you need to go downtown and get 100 grand out of the bank and go buy an ultrasound for the clinic. Find out who needs it. Can't take it with you. You might save some lives and get greeted with great joy in heaven someday by them. At the least, we need to vote for pro-life legislators. At the least. And at the least, there should be no God-fearing, Christian, Bible-believing, pro-choice people. Period. Period. Come talk to me if you don't agree with me. I'm happy to talk to you. Happy. Compassionately and lovingly. Let's pray. Well, Father, we want to be the church that you want us to be, and we do not want to live below our potential. And so help us not to be silent. Help us not to be saltless. But help us to just be the saltiest of salt. Help us to be the brightest of a bright light. Help us to be the most loving of of loving. Help us to think with godly insight, recognizing we stand accountable to you and that you have spoken. And clearly, Lord, these issues are disconcerting. We want to make a difference. So will your Holy, through your Holy Spirit, please begin to show us and show us how to channel our resources and our energy and Thank you for your grace, Lord, and your good hand upon us. Lord, bless the homes that have adopted children, that those children will connect and be loving and loved. Open our eyes, drop the scales so that we can see how to do more in our culture. Preserve our children, I pray, in our homes with purity. And then just begin to use us, Lord, in a whole brand new way. But help us to stand with courage no matter the cost in this sinful world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.